Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard. I am Director of ECFR. And this week we are returning to a topic that we tackled not so long ago, the topic of sanctions. Following the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the White House and the EU have both announced new rounds of sanctions against Moscow, and recent reports suggest that the US may be considering sanctions against China. Should Beijing continue or begin to provide Russia with greater military assistance in its war against Ukraine? A couple of weeks ago, we had Agathe de Marais, who is the author of Backfire, How Sanctions Reshape the World Against US Interests on the podcast. But today, we're going to have a very different perspective. Here to give us a US perspective, we have a very special guest, Jim James O'Brien. Jim has been head of the Office of Sanctions Coordination at the US State Department since April 2022. And in that role, he's been overseeing American work on sanctions and coordinating their implementation with US allies. Jim is a seasoned diplomat who previously worked as special presidential envoy for hostage affairs. And he played a crucial role in helping broker the Dayton Accords, which ended the war in Bosnia in 1995. Jim, thank you so much for joining. Yeah, thank you for having me on, Mark. I appreciate it. I like the podcast a lot. Well, it's great to have you. And it feels like a very good time to to look at this whole question of sanctions in the context of the war in Ukraine, but maybe also to put that into an even bigger context of thinking about the economic weapon, as people have called it. So um, in the immediate aftermath of, of Russia's invasion, the West responded much more strongly and with a lot more unity than most observers had expected. And the the heart of that initial response were a massive set of sanctions which were imposed on the the Russian economy. At the time, uh, many people predicted that the Russian economy might collapse in and of itself, but instead it proved surprisingly resilient. The Russian economy shrunk only by a meagre 2% last year, much less than the Ukrainian economy did as a result of the the brutal campaign against civilian infrastructure that the uh, Russians have been waging in, in Ukraine. And Russia has, meanwhile, kept selling oil to the likes of Turkey, the UAE, India, China, and all sorts of other countries. The, the West has introduced a price cap on, on Russian oil. Various other uh, measures have, have been implemented more recently. But it would be good to get... The reason I'm mentioning all these things is because there's been quite a, a kind of lively debate about whether the economic weapon has lived up to its billing, how significant have the sanctions been. So can you maybe give us some of a sense both of, of what the sanctions were trying to do and how you think that they are operating at the moment. Thanks. I enjoyed the conversation you had with uh, Agathe Demarais, whom I don't know, but I enjoyed her book. I hope that doesn't count against my uh, contributions at the bookshelf segment of the podcast. But the uh, um, a couple of uh, uh, points. So we're a year in. We're closing in. There, there are close to 40 countries now that are part of the coalition to impose financial sanctions and also export controls on Russia in in response to what it has done. Um, And the goal um, there is to deny it the resources that it needs to carry out this imperial project. 
The, um, there are about 3,000 individuals and institutions have been designated, you know, somewhere above 2,000. And we're closing in on three, but that's not the mark of success. So why don't I talk about what we think we're trying to do and, and then uh, a bit on, on the effectiveness and then some of the challenges we're facing. Um, feel free to interrupt at any time. Uh, so on the goals, we're, we're trying to do three things. One is deny Russia the resources for this imperial project. The second is to reduce our own reliance on, on Russia, right? To, to deny Russia leverage over us. And sanctions are a great tool. It's like uh, in the myth, Ulysses um, lashing himself to the mast so that he's able to hear the siren call. But sanctions very often by saying that we will not accept certain imports from Russia, um, we are uh, allowing ourselves to create diversity in our energy mix, certain raw commodities and other, other key items. And we've seen remarkable progress there. The third pillar here that we're achieving is to keep global markets functioning. Russia is a very important provider of certain basic commodities, food, fertilizer, oil and gas, as you mentioned. And, and we want to be sure that the global south is able to benefit from those exports. So the idea behind the cap on Russian oil, including some refined products and crude, is that Russia can sell freely to the global south, while the EU, US, and our G7 uh, partners have all said that we will not accept uh, imports of, of uh, Russian oil and, you know, with some exceptions, uh, you know, some Russian gas, limited oil. So, so we're... We're allowing global markets to function. We're reducing our reliance and thus Russia's leverage, but we're also denying Russia resources. Um, and that, that means we're not trying to achieve any one of those three goals in a, in a maximal way, but it's a nice, stable kind of three-legged uh, stool that, that can operate in, in bumpy terrain. Now, are these things working? Uh, we think they're having a real effect, and I measure it. They're kind of three three uh, items I use to measure. One is, are we highlighting the criminality and violence in this project? So many of the individuals and institutions that have been designated are those who need to be held accountable. They're involved in the theft of children, theft of grain, illegal annexations, you know, on down the list of the atrocities and torture that we've seen committed in the, the territories that Russia is occupying in Ukraine. And so that's a function of preparing to uh, have a measure of truth and accountability after the, the war and, and trying to make clear that this is, um, this is not a conflict uh, that through which Russia can, can add to its territory. Then there are two other items, though, that, that go directly to Russia's ability to carry out this campaign. The first is, are the sanctions and export controls impeding Russia's progress on the battlefield? And here we do see direct effects. Russia is fighting a war from several decades ago. And the reason for this is it does, does not have access to the kind of advanced electronics that allow for modern war fighting. So it's not fighting a war of positioning, rapid movement, precision guided attacks. It's fighting a war where it's misusing a number of weapons. Um, and it's, it's, it's essentially trying to overcome the courage and ingenuity of the Ukrainian side with just mass quantities of poor quality weaponry. And, and we should go into that in more detail because it's difficult to talk about this in uh, public. Some of this material is, is somewhat sensitive, but fundamentally what we see is Russia is able to 
make a certain number of missiles and strategic weapons, um, maybe 60 to 90, some number like that. And that's what it has left to fight with each month. Um, and then it has to make more and use more. But it's not fighting the kind of war of maneuver, position, and precision that Ukraine is able to fight. And it's that qualitative difference that is a reason our response is not just the sanctions, but also working with the Ukrainians so that they have the more modern technology. And it's in the quality gap that we see both the need to provide Ukraine with modern weapons and training, but also uh, to continue what we're doing with sanctions. And I want to come back to that in a minute. The, the third um, measurement I use for success is whether it's denying Russia the flexible liquid cash it needs to pay for its priorities. You know, for much of last year, President Putin was trying to say life at home in Russia is unchanged. We continue uh, civilian life as before and we're financing a conflict. But of course, he was also censoring the statistics that uh, basic economic statistics and only allowing out the selective statistics that showed the story um, he wanted to tell. I guess it's it's like the old joke that in you know the Soviet Union, it was the past that was the contested territory. What we're finding in today's Russia is the present is actually uh, uh, deeply uncertain. But we do know the trajectory of these, these sanctions. What we see is Russia has a lot less of this flexible capital now. And I'm happy to go through a number of different ways of measuring it, but here's one quick one. It's sort of cash on hand. When the war began, somebody could have briefed President Putin and told him down that long table that Russia would have about $850 billion to spend on its priorities based in 2022. That's essentially, say, the reserves they had built up from all the energy sales over the years before, $640 billion. And then about another 200, 220 that it could expect to make from exports because there were record prices for Russia's exports. This year, I think that number is much, much smaller. Why do I think that? Well, Russia's own estimates are that it probably has about 128 billion in really liquid capital. This is what some senior Russian figures have said publicly. And this year, its export earnings will be much lower as prices have come down in part due to the price gap. So we think Russia will earn 100, 120 billion this year from its exports. So, and then on top of it, uh, half of its strategic reserves have been blocked and mobilized in the West. So it began last year with 640 billion. We think 300 billion is uh, immobilized. And it had spent net about, it had reduced the rest of the reserves by about 60 billion. Um, that's pretty remarkable. For a year of record earnings, it actually burned through almost a quarter of its reserves. That leaves it with about $280 billion left. A third of that is in Remnimby. Okay, that's useful, but limited in its application for buying products, especially electronics that it likes to get from the West. Um, and about another third is in gold, not exactly liquid, and we are taking measures to reduce its access to the global gold markets. Um, and so that, that leaves them then back with the number the Russians have said they have, about 120 billion. So already they have blown through a substantial amount of the nest egg that, that the Russians entered the war with. And so the result is we're seeing they're running the largest deficit, we think, since 1987. Um, their month on month oil revenues are down by almost 50%, high 40%. And, and the result is a lot less cash now. Is that going to cause the collapse of the economy? Is that going to stop them from pursuing this war right away? 
that's really a decision for people who know the Kremlin. What I can say is it's going to force them to start making some difficult choices and to make these choices much more quickly than a bureaucracy really um, wants to do. And so we're so that there, the friction in their system is going to become a real impediment to moving on. So that's roughly where we see the position right now. And then I pause there. So there have been lots of studies, competing studies about how effective the sanctions have been, looking at lots of different indicators. But one thing does seem to be clear, which is that there has been quite a lot of backfilling, partly because the way that you laid out your three objectives, they do obviously slightly contradict each other, or there's tension between them, whether or not they contradict each other. As you said, they balance each other. But But including on on the technology front, they've been able to buy quite a lot of semiconductors and microprocessors from from other places that they weren't buying from the West beforehand. How do you see that fitting into the picture? And is that something which is going to be the next wave of the the sanctions regime to go after some of this backfilling? Or is that in contradiction with your third goal of keeping the global economy open? No, I I think it is. It's normal that uh, you you sort of have to confront each problem as it arises. Hopefully you get a little bit in front of it. And so what we saw was at the start of the war for certain key components like semiconductors, Russia imported more than 90% of what it used both for civilian and military purposes. Um, and in the first months after the war, its ability to import semiconductors, integrated circuits, more advanced chips, plummeted. Um, so by September, say, the integrated circuit uh, imports, we believe, were down 70 75%. At the end of last year, Russia found a way of buying more. And we think by January, it was beginning to import again at pre-war levels. So a few points about that. The, the first is, you know, where do these things come from? Well, 90% come from China. Uh, another substantial amount comes from India as originators. And the rest came from the G7. Um, what we noted in the trade patterns was that uh, all of our countries were selling, um, they'd stopped selling to Russia, but had begun to sell to third companies in third countries, particularly in Turkey. United Arab Emirates, and some in Central Asia, so Kazakhstan. Um, and, and then, of course, the trade statistics from those countries indicated that the goods that were being sold to those company, countries were then flipped on to Russia. Now, how do we address that? The first is we can stop our own exports. And so the EU, beginning in December, put in trade restrictions on many of these commodities. The, um, and the U.S. has followed. So by February, we and the EU, joined by Japan and the rest of the G7, had put in place restrictions on many of these, these items. And what we're talking about are consumer goods, you know, washing machines, television sets, you know, dryers, all of the tele, um, all the way down the list of, of normal uses. And the reports are that some of those goods were being then pulled apart with the uh, electronics stripped out and used for military purposes. That trade should dry up soon. The second thing we're doing is working with the third countries so that they don't re-export any items they happen to find. A lot of these goods are kind of global commodities. They may be able to source them from, from places outside the G7. 
Um, and we're starting to see some real progress there. I was with my EU and UK counterparts. When, when you counterparts, say working basically. with, what does that? Yeah. Is that basically well, making them an offer they can't refuse? No, it's, it's uh, their companies, their markets are in the West, particularly Turkey and a lot of the UAE and, and others. And they want to have more business in the West. If they're, in fact, selling goods to uh, the Russian military, they don't have a future selling to the more lucrative markets that they want access to. They're aware of this. So the, the sea change is that this trade was allowed for several months. It now is not. And so the companies in these markets understand that it's time for this, this momentary um, surge in, in resale to, uh, to end. Now, what is the impact of this on the battlefield? And I, I think this is something we're still working our way through. The, um, if Russia's now in, make importing at pre-war levels, that's already well below its demand. Because in a war economy, you would expect them to be making many more uh, weapons, plus they have the civilian demand, even if it's slightly depressed, and yet they're not up to that level. On top of it, the capability of what they're importing is not really what one needs for a modern precision warfare. Um, so their capability is much lower. And I think you've seen some published reports as well that the imports from particularly China and India have real quality problems um, and often have high failure rates. So it's, it's less about a pure numbers game and, again, widening the technological gap so that the courageous Ukrainians at the front line know that their weapons are always going to work and the Russian weapons aren't going to work as well and may not work as well, at all. And that's a piece of, of dealing with this backfilling problem. Maybe we can stick with China for a second, because obviously part of the problem is with dual-use technologies, as you're describing at the moment, where they're, yeah. which have been part of the backfilling. But, but Secretary Blinken has recently warned that, that China might go beyond supplying these dual-use technologies to actually providing arms to, to, to Russia, which would be a huge shift in, uh, in its stated policy. And there have been all sorts of threats being made in the media about possible sanctions against China secondary sanctions against China if that should, ha should were that to happen. Could you talk a, a bit more about that and how it would work? Because that would also not just be a, a big step from the Chinese side, it would be quite a big step from Western side to go after a country the size of China. It, it's um, So I can't really add much to what the secretaries had to say, uh, just a little bit for context. The, um, we did designate a Chinese company uh, now a couple of months ago, uh, it was providing imagery to the Wagner group, right? The paramilitary group that's recruiting prisoners. Uh, and, and we saw a, a response to that, um, that was, I, I think, as we'd expect. The company, I think, realized that it, uh, um, shouldn't continue that activity. I think we would expect to see something similar from Chinese companies that are selling uh, military capable dual use items if they, they are. Um, and, and so we'd expect the conversation to continue. Fundamentally, the Chinese need to decide if they're on the side of, uh, the UN charter, um, uh, or wanting this war to continue indefinitely. President Putin has said he's going to keep fighting as long as he can keep fighting. And China has said 
you know, now this is reported publicly, it said it doesn't intend to provide any munitions into an active conflict zone. Um, that's the position they should hold to, or we'll have more discussions like we've had around that one Chinese company. So you've mentioned some of the criteria against which you judge the success of sanctions so far. A lot of the public debate is focused on the, the number of countries that are participating, admitted that, you know, most com- countries in the world are not participating in the sanctions. To what extent is that a problem? I mean, what, one of the interesting things about American sanctions is because of the nature of the global financial system, um, right. quite a lot can be achieved just with unilateral sanctions because if, if people have to choose between the American market and if companies have to choose between the American market and other markets, as you were saying earlier, it's often quite an easy decision and that's meant that it's been possible even without roping other countries in to have quite a devastating effect on different economies around the world. But how do you see this this question about the way that this battle for, for the global south and for, for other countries is proceeding around sanctions? Yeah, I think there, there are two elements to it. So the, the first is around the effectiveness of the sanctions. My main goal, again, is to deny Russia its resources and you know, keep the markets functioning. Um, and that we are very focused on the countries that have the resources Russia needs. Um, there, I feel like we're getting near a hundred percent of who we need to have involved for financial sanctions. It's the G7, right? Once Russia's denied access to the pound, the euro, the dollar, as well as uh, the yen and, and other significant currencies and banking systems, that has a very real impact. And, and so, I'm comfortable with the size of the, the coalition there. Similarly, for technology, the high-end technology is uh, coming from from Europe and the U.S. and Japan. And, and our, this is not a matter of unilateral sanctions. It's the G7 working together. The broader conversation, and, and I think it's a really important one, is to ensure that the global south doesn't feel that it is hurt by the U.S. sanctions or the, and the G7 sanctions. And, and on this front, we're very clear. We don't uh, designate companies involved in the products that matter most to the global south. So food and fertilizer, and then with the price cap, oil and gas. So they are able to get what they want. And, and I think here there are a couple important markers of success. Um, with the UN in the lead um, and real help from Turkey, we've seen Ukraine be able to return to global grain markets despite continued Russian interference. Um, and we've been assisting Russia in getting its grain and fertilizer out to global markets. So in the summer, we heard a lot of complaints from the global south about pricing and also access to particularly food. And and now they see that that's less a problem of sanctions and more of the war itself having caused a speculative um, bubble. And that carries over into which side are people on. You look at the votes consistently in the UN General Assembly, more than 140 uh, countries have voted regularly for um, you about to support Ukraine's territorial integrity, to call for an end to the threats and to call for accountability. Um, for those who are attacking. And even more striking is that um, when Russia has interfered with Ukraine's ability to export, as when it suspended its participation in the UN talks 
in the fall, it's been isolated. In the UN Security Council, even China spoke against Russia's policy. In China's peace plan, they call for allowing the continuation of all the exports of grain. Um, and you see the leaders of the G20 speak out pretty robustly um, against Russia's efforts to stop Ukraine from coming back to those those markets. So I think when push comes to shove, when people really need to speak out for their interests, um, I feel that they understand that Russia is causing the crisis, not, uh, um, not our sanctions. And that's a critical element in the, the, as you say, the battle for hearts and minds of the global south. So one of the big debates that's been going on at the moment, one of the things I, I spoke to Agathe de Marais about in the earlier podcast is whether the weaponization of the global financial and trading system by the West is ultimately self-defeating. By using this kind of uh, weapon, we accelerate the development of a post-dollar world and, uh, and we give people incentives not to be dependent on the system. Uh, I mean, ironically, Russia's been very good at showing the limits of, of uh, sanctions effectiveness. It introduced bans on Georgian wine, which were very effective when they were being threatened. But as soon as they, they did it, um, Georgia then found alternative markets. We're seeing the same dangers with the with the energy weapon at the moment from a Russian perspective as, as its biggest clients are now finding non-Russian energy futures. It's harder for people to disentangle themselves from, from the dollar given how central it is to the, the global financial system. But do you worry at all that, that we might be hastening the end of, of the current financial order as a result of these sanctions? I think it's the one point I maybe diverge from her conclusion in that I, I think all of these are symptoms of the kind of tectonic uh, shifts in the globe, the kind of thing you write about in your book, that that we're, we're looking at the emergence of power centers in particular from Beijing and having control over a currency and over global financial transactions is a part of what a superpower will want. So I think all of this is happening um, not because we have the ability to sanction or not because we are sanctioning people, but because, frankly, we have the ability and there are people who are going to try to create alternative centers of power. So I, I think it's less a reaction to and more a symptom of just the, the role that the U.S. plays. Now, do I worry? I, I think as long as the U.S. maintains our commitment to a rule of law and to some predictable rule-based international order, will always be the preferred place for people to bring their capital. It will be a very deep and diverse and innovative economy that, that will assure people that money in does get to come out as long as you play by the rules. And I don't think any of the competitors can offer the same. So the other thing which people mention a lot when they talk about these sanctions is even if they are working in the ways that you're talking about and that they have a devastating effect on Russia's medium to long-term economic future and, we, you know, maybe with political implications in the kind of medium to longer term, they certainly haven't stopped the war from being fought in the short term. They might have increased the price and changed the way that it's, it's fought, but they've not been enough to stop the war. And this is a sort of battle of endurance between Russia <laughs> and Ukraine and backers around the world. And it's definitely true that after the first year, 
Russia's done a much better job of destroying the Ukrainian economy and its ability to function effectively than uh, Ukraine and its backers have, have done at uh, constraining Russia economically. And people do think there might be an asymmetry between these different clocks. The sanctions clock could be devastating, but, you know, after long after the sort of short-term expediency of ending this imperial aggression is over. How do you feel about those sorts of arguments that many people have been making? I, I think, as you say, it's about what clock you're operating on. The crisis in Ukraine today really originates with Vladimir Putin's speech in 2007 in Munich. When he talked about the, the need for, you know, essentially, you know, Russia to be a continental land empire uh, of the kind Catherine the Great, um, sought. And that crisis will go on even if he declares, uh, tools down and, and a ceasefire tomorrow. The ambition will remain and the effort to, um, undermine Ukraine's political independence will remain. So the sanctions are tied, as the G7 leader said, uh, on the 24th. They're tied to an end to the threat to Ukrainians independence, uh, Ukraine's independence and, and territorial integrity. And that's a longer term uh, prospect than just the, the fighting the war. And I think on this point, it's why stra- sanctions are just a piece of a strategy. So we are involved in um, supporting Ukraine as it fights for its, its territory. And the sanctions are a part of that, but they're not the only tool that we have. Once the war ends, Ask me who is going to be a, a part of a leading economic bloc that will be innovative and sort of leaping forward into the new foundational technologies of the future, you know, artificial intelligence, biomanufacturing, et cetera. Russia has eaten its seed corn to be part of that. Ukraine now is on a path to be part of the European economic space. And so if we look over time, I feel like the sanctions are helping to create the environment that will give Ukraine a much brighter future. Maybe a final question we could ask is about the kind of future of of sanctions as part of that toolkit. Because, you know, I think on the one hand, what we're seeing are totally different sorts of sanctions. They're much more sophisticated and much more finely calibrated than what, you know, your grandfather's sanctions (laughs) might have looked like. Um, But at the same time, I think, you know, we both came of age at a time when, uh, war was returning to the Balkans and, you know, that happened just after the Iraq war. And that was a time when people initially looked to sanctions as the main way of, of dealing with problems. And there was a, you know, they were blunter and less sophisticated than the sanctions that we have at the moment. But right. there were many people who, who hoped that sanctions could be used against Iraq, could be used against Slobodan right. Milosevic. And it, the failure of those sanctions to have the effects that people had hoped that they would have led, I think, to, to uh, you know, there were various other things going on, big structural changes in the global balance of power. But they, I think these two things were not unconnected. Many people, particularly on the left and from more kind of progressive backgrounds, could see that sanctions were not going to deliver the, the justice and, and uh, the geopolitical goals that people wanted. And I think that opened the door for a whole series of military interventions, partly because sanctions were not seen to be working anymore and, and they were having too many side effects. If the sanctions don't work on Ukraine or are not seen to work in the timescale which um, which people have been expecting them to. Do you think that we could see a new wave of other kinds of interventions? I mean, what people looking at other parts of their toolkit and giving up on sanctions? Well, okay, it's a huge question. Um, sanctions are one tool. 
Um, and as you say, they've refined. So I managed the sanctions programs against the rump Yugoslavia, and I inherited a lot of, let's say, your grandfather's sanctions, the trade uh, embargoes and efforts to restrict consumer goods, essentially to to see whether people could be made cold and hungry and, and thus stop their policy. And that did not work. Um, what we did was move to uh, focus on the Smart sanctions, sanctions. They were called. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I'd like to think any policy I'm part of is smarter than the, the average. But the uh, um, it, it's it, it was focused on the elites and the, the decisions that they would have to make. And that's the choice we're putting. It's much like a press in football or basketball, right? They have to decide faster on terms that aren't favorable to them and, and in ways that they aren't used to. So Russia's out backfilling, but it has to buy from vendors it doesn't know and quantities it can't predict, at prices that it can't predict, um, and the quality is is uncertain. And and they just you keep putting them to those choices. And we saw with Milosevic, I think it pushed him to make some very um, let's say terminal political choices um, that he would not have made uh, otherwise. Um, I think in the other cases we need to be very. Um, well, I think Iraq's obviously its own big decision. So why don't I pause with that? I think sanctions are going to remain a critical part of the toolkit, but they have to be fully integrated with um, other tools um, and, and with a clear eye on what we're trying to achieve. Thank you very much. I think we're coming to the end of our time. It's been a fascinating discussion, but there is definitely one thing left to do on this podcast, and that's our bookshelf uh-huh. segment. So, Jim, what's on your bookshelf? I'll be as quick as I can, and I'll give you one that uh, is unusual. This this question gave me the most trouble. Um, the first, I'll say it's uh, Jonathan Powell's books on his negotiating experience, particularly talking to terrorists. Um, he's the rare person. A lot of mediators write, but a government has the ability to affect the options set that uh, parties have to uh, address. And Jonathan's work in Northern Ireland, which he's written about, but but also more broadly, means he's he's a, in a unique position. Maybe he and Marty Atasari. So as a how-to book on how to negotiate, I think it's it's uh, an exceptional couple of volumes. The second book, uh, maybe this will lean heavily uh, Irish. Finian O'Toole wrote a book called um, "We Don't Know Ourselves," uh, which is a sort of impressionistic history of Ireland, and I think it's very useful for this audience in two broader respects. It's a bit of a story of how Ireland transitioned from a kind of, say, uh, country of machine politics uh, um, into a more vibrant, uh, open democracy. Um, I probably will annoy my Irish friends that I put it that way. But I think for, for any one of the countries that's been working on its transition from a single-party uh, political space to multi-party, it's a really interesting tale. And there's a particular point about the the... Um, Northern Ireland peace process, where the, the participants mentioned to him that they felt it was time to make peace in the late 90s because they realized that after 30 years, they were about to hand this conflict over to their kids. And, and once the kids were invested in it, it would go on at least another generation. And I think when we look at many of the conflicts that have been frozen during the 20-odd years that Putin's been in power, we're coming on that clock as well. And it, it should give people in the Western Balkans, in the Caucasus and elsewhere, moments pause when they think about what they're bequeathing to the next generation. Maybe this is a, a time they should pick up the opportunity in front of them. 
Um, my last one, and I uh, apologies for running this a little long, is one for people who want to know America. And it's a book called The Baseball 100 by a man named Joe Posnanski. And the reason for this is I think baseball is an interesting insight into a couple elements of America. Just like Western movies, baseball is sort of the next century story, of, uh, the myth America tells itself, right? It's a pastoral game that grew to popularity at the very time that millions of Americans were moving from farms into the cities. It was also the time when our color line was made formal. And so the barring of black players from, from professional sports kind of happened around this same time when baseball as, as the game of nostalgia was, was used as a way of, of reifying the, the segregation that has been my country's stain. And this particular book, it's, it's a bunch of five to 10 page anecdotes about great baseball players. So each one of them is a window to a little segment of American society over the last century. But its most interesting component is that he's tried to explain both how the great black players would have done if they were allowed to compete, but also how the white players that we all grew up lionizing maybe weren't quite as good as we thought because they didn't have to compete against the very best players in the country. And that, I think, touches at some of the cultural unease everyone feels today, because as we look at, or many people in America talk about, because as we look at our history, we have to say that, that maybe the ways that some cultures have been a little bit oppressed has, has allowed others of us an unfair benefit. And, it, and it's attacked from a, a, an angle of sports, and I think it's a fascinating way of thinking about the trends in our own culture today. So there you go with that one. Wow, thanks, Jim. So we should probably come back and do a whole podcast just on your bookshelves because <laughs> uh, that was quite a bookshelf segment. Thank you very much um, for that and for everything else that, that we've talked about. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please do go to whatever platform you've used to download this podcast from and subscribe to future podcasts. And while you're there, be great if you could give us a positive review and a five-star rating because that will help bring other people to the pod. We'll put a link up to all the amazing publications that Jim mentioned on our website at ecfr.eu. But for now, from Jim O'Brien and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of this podcast is Anand Sundar and the editor of this episode is Mireya Farrow-Sarat. Mm-hmm.